Welcome to Inaudible. My name is Jeremy Wyland, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joseph D'Artez. On this podcast, we discuss the weird, beautiful channeled messages found in the archives of organizations like LL Research, Circle R, and others. The archives contain transcripts of messages from allegedly discarnate sources who articulate a philosophy of spiritual evolution. If you would like an audio version of the transcripts, please subscribe to Ryan Masterson's podcast, Living Love and Light, available on all platforms. Joseph and I will try to provide an analysis and commentary on the philosophy described in these messages, identifying the common themes, and grappling with the application of this information to our human lives. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Joseph, my friend, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Fantastic. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a long time since we've had you back on the show, but I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, Ryan is uh, needing to take a little bit of a break. He works in the markets, and the markets are super crazy right now. Uh, this is uh, We're recording on May 7th, and I think on Friday we had one of the biggest dips in the Dow in a while. So uh, he's doing damage control there and pretty busy with, uh, with two kids. And uh, I really appreciate, I, as, you can, as you might have noticed, I've promoted you uh, from mere guest to co-host. I did notice that. <laughs> I, I wonder what kind of responsibilities that comes with. Oh, you will find out. <laughs> but I figure once you're on three times, it's like, come on, let's stop. <laughs> let's stop beating around the bush. So uh, where we wanted to begin today was... Uh, you know, Joseph is a PhD student in philosophy and also a longtime uh, student of the law of one. Uh, and we often have uh, discussions uh, that center on aspects of the application of this law of one philosophy to our lives that we might have differences of opinion on. And one of these uh, differences we discovered was on the subject of criticism and its function relative to uh, the law of one, service to others, and uh, how that functions. You know, we didn't get into this in our discussion on the on the chat group, but uh, I'm also interested in understanding this both from the function of the critic and how to accept criticism. Because if if we have the uh, idea that criticism is supposed to be a service to our other self then we need to think about it, I would, I would argue, uh, from both sides. Um, would you agree with that as a starting point? Well, yeah, of course. Although I already have things to say. Fantastic. Well, uh, is there anything you want to say about that in specific? To, to, I want to give you a chance to, set the, to, 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 to get the setting right for what you want to say as well. Sure. Well, then let's go ahead and circumscribe a boundary. Um, so at the outset, I want to, to be clear that there is a concept uh, or, or an approach to criticism that I've seen in, I'll just call it new age circles, um, where, and I've seen this multiple times, both in like personal interactions with friends, uh, as well as um, in media that I've seen from journalists concerning um, various groups that I don't have any direct contact with. But here's here's the pattern. So the the group of people, they ascribe to a shared belief that um, there is some value in, in mirroring. And, and of course, this is found in the Confederation message, the idea being that whatever 
whatever a person is presenting to you is in some way like a mirror of your own world. And so it's best to recognize the, um, the value of that mirror and to try to some, some way uh, integrate it. So like this would be um, like an acceptance kind of practice. So this would be as the criticized, right? Right. So the, the criticized is, is listening to the message and trying to make sense of, of, of like how they might have attracted, attracted this message and um, to find maybe the, the truth in it or to, to discover um, how this perspective of themselves from a different, like from the outside might capture some truth and so on and so forth, right? Right. So the boundary I want to establish is between the, the way that this sort of mirroring mechanism happens naturally, you might say, um, in which two people are interacting and nobody's thinking about, um, I am a mirror to you. It just happens versus intentionally being that mirror. Um, and so what I was saying that I've seen both in my personal life and through media representations is people who are basically engaged in, um, I don't know, almost like retaliatory action or their, um, they're being cruel to somebody else or they're doing to somebody else what that person did to them. And they call it sort of intentionally mirroring. Like I'm just being a mirror to you. Um, so, so the, the, the function of metaphysical mirroring, uh, serves as like a justification for, um, like a tit for tat kind of retaliation. So the boundary I'm circumscribing is that whatever kind of like positive value there is in being a critic, it's not that. Um, because that kind of behavior um, is, in my mind, it, it reinforces um, a refusal to uh, take responsibility for the whatever you're putting out into the world. You're sort of shifting it out, out onto the other person. So, like, my, all of my agency as a human being gets shifted onto you, and I'm just sort of, like, uh, reflecting onto you what it is you're giving to me. And that's all I can do, that, that kind of attitude. Um, but of course, we're agents. So it's just as true that the other person is reflecting back to us what we're giving to them. Um, so I think there's a lot of danger in, uh, in, t- in trying to consciously be a mirror to someone else. It's, um, how can I say it? It's, it's a pitfall. I would certainly agree with that. I think that's a great place to start. We need to decouple the emotional acts that people grind under the rubric of criticism with the uh, the 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 more uh, strident or uh, honest mirroring that can happen when someone genuinely wants to reflect back the a more complete image than you think that you are, that person is seeing, right? Like that's, that's, that's a, that might be a, a way to start to, to define criticism as we mean it in the confederation sense, which would be a kind of mirroring where you are pointing out the things that they're missing in the image they are supposed to be seeing reflected back to them. Where does that fall short? Yeah. So the next thing it seems like we ought to do is to define criticism. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's what I, where I was grasping anyway. So I have I've, I, in my notes, which are very short, 
Um, <clears throat> I have a cursory definition of criticism. Uh, it probably needs some more elaboration, but here's what I got. So when you're criticizing, and note that I'm, uh, I'm not taking criticizing a person as the fundamental concept of criticizing. I think you can criticize anything. But when you're criticizing, you're holding a thing's actual function up against the evaluative criteria for that functioning. So like you ask yourself, how is this thing playing out in the world based on what kind of thing it is? And for the kind of thing it is, what does it mean to be a good version of that thing? And so insofar as the thing doesn't live up to being a good version of the thing, then we, you know, we have reason to criticize it. So the point here is that um, evaluations are at the center of what it means to criticize. And I think this is probably why the Confederation in a couple of the, um, of the transcripts that you pointed out to me um, seem to consistently say you shouldn't, well, I say you should, but say, uh, I don't know, they enjoin us not to be a critic. Yeah, there. so there's one that I think we were talking about explicitly during our conversation that might be a good place to start. And I think it's, um, I think it's a transcript that we've already dealt with, me and Ryan, um, but I think it's time to get back into it. Uh, so this was when we were talking about the spirit complex, I believe. There was, um, this is uh, January 6th, 1991, and uh, it was that part right at the end of our... Uh, two-part series and it kind of seemed like it was a little bit orthogonal to the idea of the soul and the spirit that we were talking about in that episode but now I feel like we can really zero in on it so it's um it's it's conflating judgment with criticism I want to say that out of the gate because this may be exactly the 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 distinction you're making I would I want to give you a chance to comment on it here it is this is quo what have you judged today? Each judgment has pulled you away from your soul. Unlike discrimination, which is a subjective matter of saying, this is mine, but this is not. A judgment is a matter of, this is correct, and this is not. To judge yourself for yourself is to do your work. To judge others for the self is to be a critic. And how shall the critic grasp the nature of the play if it is only an observer? Nay, you do not wish to be a critic. You do not wish, though you may think so, to be clever and intelligent and intellectual. You simply you need simply to straighten up the household of your mind, and when it is tidy, to move into the heart. Through love, open the heart, so that without fear you may greet yourself. Reactions to that. <laughs> All right, so for sure that there is a close identity in this passage between judgment and criticism. And I think my comment on judgment would be similar to my comment on criticism, criticism, which is basically there's judgment and then there's judgment or <laughs> yeah. there's criticism and then there's criticism. In other words, uh, in both cases, I think there's a very particular kind of judgment and a very particular kind of criticism um, that the Confederation has in mind here. So in judgment, of course, here what we have is specifically an evaluative judgment of the other person as a person. So, like, it's it suggests you're not living up to your function as a person. You're not a good enough person. Be better. Here's how you can be better. It's that kind of judgment. But of course, the word, it's it doesn't have to be evaluative. Like, I can I can make all kinds of judgments. 
would you say evaluative? Sorry to interrupt you, but would you say that that's the distinction they're making between mine and not mine and correct and not correct? Because mine and not mine is centering me and what's for me and what's not. But correct or not correct seems to be more of this evaluation of a, of an ideal that we are assuming both sides are, are are striving towards, right? I think those are two different distinctions. Yeah. Okay. So the the correct and not correct is the evaluative dimension that I'm talking about. I, that's what that's what I thought. Yeah. And the mine and not mine is quo saying, okay, you can make judgments about what's correct and incorrect for you, but don't do it for other people. Yes. You agree? I am. I am start. So like, here's the, here's the problem is that you are changing my interpretation of this because I had assumed that this is mine, but this is not is the, oh God, dare I say right way to do it, which is, whereas the, this is correct and this is not, I was thinking they were saying like, if you set up a single standard of what's right and not right, what's correct and not correct, what is what is the ideal and then everything that falls short of that ideal, right? Um, I was seeing that as a less helpful way to serve. But I may have not truly delved into this enough. I don't know. Well, <clears throat> correct and incorrect is a really st- strange way to to frame uh, evaluative judgments in the Confederation context in particular, uh, because, because of course, Ra says, and I quote, in truth, there is no right or wrong, unquote. Now, even that needs some some interpretation, because what does it mean to say, in truth, there is no right or wrong? Yeah, what and is the truth my, they're talking about if there's no right or wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. My interpretation is, what it basically means is that right or wrong um, is is something that you have to established for yourself like there's something that can be right for you something that can be wrong for you and um this rightness or wrongness for the self characterizes i think movement down a polarized path so like say if you're on the service to others path there are certain things that will be wrong for you because they deviate from that path and you've committed to the path right um so i think this is the sense in which uh, morality really has meaning for the spiritual seeker like it's meaningful to be to do to do something morally wrong, in the sense that morally wrong is something that um, that characterizes your deviation from the path that you've already committed to. Yeah. What do you think? I well, th- it's just an issue of who gets to say what that path is, right? Well, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and certainly you and I would not even attempt to talk about this if we didn't have some idea that there was a, there was a common concept that we could, that through talking, we could, we could reach this common concept. Um, I'm hoping that in the process, I mean, I'm already reading this in a different light, um, because they seem to say that the judgment part, so they're, so the first, the first part of this is that they're distinguishing between discrimination which is what's mine and what's not mine versus judgment, which is correct or not correct. So right there, I think you've pointed out that there isn't this one that's good and one that's bad. Judgment is simply this evaluative step that you're talking about. And then they say evaluating yourself to judge yourself for yourself is to do your work. But that's, that is the reflective process that we go through by experiencing catalysts, by running into things that you know at first repulse us, and then learning how it is part of us. 
Um, well, yeah, let's t- let's talk about that for a second. Sure. Because I, I actually think it's helpful to um, to evaluate yourself, but it can also be unhelpful to evaluate yourself. It can, I mean, it depends on how you're evaluating. So what do I mean by that? Yeah. Um, let's say that I am frustrated with my inability to, um, I don't know, spend every waking moment in what I consider to be service. So like I have this concept of service and like I find myself watching the X-Files and that doesn't seem like it serves much of anything at all. It seems like I'm wasting time. And then I think, well, this is not good. I I could be doing better than watching the X-Files, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I say this because I've recently been watching the X-Files <laughs> with Catherine. Anyway. <laughs> well, so I don't think that's actually a very helpful way to judge. Um, because what's what's happening there is um, if you are making that kind of judgment, like I'm a bad person or I'm not a good enough person for doing this thing that I think I should be doing, well, then you're not accepting yourself. And and in that kind of case, like the judgment actually runs counter to acceptance. Basically, the judgment functions as a rejection. So if if the way you go about judging yourself is to reject some part of yourself, then the judgment actually is is not helpful um, because it's it's sort of like pushing down this thing that's just sort of naturally emerging from you. Conversely, suppose you look back. Suppose I were to look back at my actions and ask myself, "Is this the person I want to be?" Mm-hmm. And in that case, it's not so much about this concept that I'm bringing to bear on myself. It's more about trying to evoke within myself a a more natural way of being. And so I can I can examine, say, in a a spat. I don't know with my partner. I can exam go back and examine that spat and ask, is this the person I want to be with her? And in that case, it's not it's not like I guess I'm sort of recovering the territory of just tread, but it's not that. I'm I'm asking myself what would a good person be like. It's mm-hmm. it's asking myself who do I want to be, and who I want to be, of course, is a good person. But it's not that I'm me wanting to be a good per- person is bringing this concept to bear onto my life. It's that it emerges naturally from me, and I need to accept myself as a good person more and more in order to be a good person. Yeah, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I feel like I'm no, no, no. a paradox. No, no, no. But I, no, no. I think, I think what you're doing is you're saying what it means to say, this is mine, right? This is, this is the self that I recognize. And when I, when I do things that show me a self that I don't recognize, then I have a choice to make, right? Do I want to steer more in the other direction? Or is there something unexplored in that new self that needs more, that needs to come out more? And then you're in an in-between state, right? Then you're in no position to judge yourself or others, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you're in that, like, f- wide open phase. Uh, but when you do have a concrete sense of your, the way that you are channeling the creator in that moment through your personality, you recognize that you have these, like, uh, fixed elements of your personality. Things are more fluid. And you can sort of say, like, okay, you know, that guy doing drugs, that's not me, right? That's not what I do. Like, it's okay that he's doing it. That's his thing, but that's not what I do. Um, that, to me, seems like an application of that principle. The question that happens is, um, you know, what happens when you do have a concept of an ideal that you want to strive for that you do see as yourself, but you you just can't get there, you know? 
Can you give me an example? Yeah, sure. Uh, addiction, <laughs> right? You know the whole time that you shouldn't be doing this, but you, in every discrete moment where you have a decision to make, you make the you make the decision that affirms a self that you do not aspire to. Well, let's drill down even deeper. Addiction to what? <laughs> um, uh, it doesn't have to be let's, you, just let's anybody. Say, let's say like let's say TV shows, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, since we're on it, right? Well, I mean, I'm not sure what addiction to a TV show would even look like. So so I think there's a problem with the concept of an addiction uh, in that sometimes what people mean is a psychological dependency and sometimes what they mean is a physical dependency. Okay, let's talk about a psychological dependency just for the sake of argument. Let's talk about a pattern of habits that have built up, right? That, you know, I mean, I think this is one of the things that the body cycle of the archetypes teaches us, right? Like that the body has its own kind of reinforcement system. Um, and uh, to break out of that is an act of will. Now, that will, that act of will, to be powerful has to draw upon something truer than the behavior you're overcoming in some way, I would say, right? Like it has to be an act. It has to be an expression of something that wasn't already being brought to bear. Am I am I completely off the reservation here? Like, no, I think you're right. Okay, so um, so the idea is that uh, in 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 executing on your will, you you change the behavior, you change the habit um, through a through a kind of act of force, and then um, but this is this is a way that you like become more and more a thing that you can say this is mine. But is it an act of force? So, so here's, and this may be a strange way, uh, approach to to well, psychological dependency. I don't want to talk about addiction in the physical sense because yeah. I think that's more complicated. I do too. Um, but psychological dependency, I think that, I mean, in most cases, and certainly this has been the case with myself. Um, a lot of times it's a retreat from, um the the slings and arrows of the world right the i mean planet earth is a really hard place to be yeah. even if you're like relatively comfortable um and this is especially true in uh the information age where we just have access to um the events all across the world and it turns out that a lot of bad things happen all across the world and we can't do anything about them um so I don't I don't know how like we can even escape this this um like global narrative within which our our lives are like a small like a small cog in the greater machine. Anyway, but in terms of like psychological dependency say on TV shows, um a lot of times I in my experience I'm either resting uh, so it's a, it can be a form of rest or I'm pulling away from something that I'm not ready to deal with. And I think both of those things are fine, actually. The only, the only time it becomes a problem, like the only time I think it, it reveals that you've got like a, um, a bad habit, we'll say, is, is if you're not taking the time to think about what's really going on with the psychological dependency. Sure. Um, so, so I do question the idea that there's an active force involved because... Again, as as Ra says, and I'm sorry, but most of my quotations will come from Ra. That's just what I know. 
Um, I'll, I'll let you do the quote quotations. You got it. <laughs> but as Ross says, like what's not needed will fall away. So I take that pretty seriously um, in the sense that if there's something in your life that is, is not good for you on the path, then the process of knowing and accepting yourself will eventually make that thing become less and less important. And you don't have to like cut it out of your life the way you might have to with a physical dependency. Yeah. So I, again, I, the physical is very different. I, and I agree with you. And uh, I think force was a poorly chosen word. It might seem from the point of view of the person on, on the, on the, on the near side of the transformation as a very forceful thing that's going on to the self in becoming more themselves, right? But on the far side, <laughs> you realize that uh, you were acting on yourself, right? You were, you, were, you were becoming more yourself in that whatever force you had was, you felt was just the resistance, right? That desire to stay in a particular safe configuration of mind or spirit or whatever. Yeah, I think force was a poorly chosen word. Um, I was trying to, I was trying to uh, think, uh, but I think that um, that's right where criticism can often be very tough. Because when we are mirroring to somebody else, and maybe the, the, the reflection that we're showing them is that they aren't being themselves fully, right? Then that can feel like a form of compulsion, a form of pressure from without that mean isn't is that not what catalyst is in, in general it's like this feel it's this externalization of that pressure you know that uh we're all feeling on the transformative path but it manifests through these like you know discrete agents me talking to another person you know and that person feeling that i have some judgment of them you know in a lot of cases even if i don't right like i know i have felt judged by people who had no interest in me right like they're just they're just talking but i perceive it oh man like that's that's showing me how i'm not measuring up to who i think i am you know well in that regard it seems to me that um if your criticism of another person is a kind of uh honest reflection of your inner nature like this is what i really think um then in that regard it offers to you something that you can uh, examine about yourself Again, uh, and this is this is raw. And here's this is going to be a paraphrase because I don't remember this one word for word. Um, I I can't remember the key word either. Sorry. So this is going to be like a. Uh, I paraphrase raw all the time. Don't worry about it. I know, but I would like to give the tools for finding the, the actual quote, and I don't I'll, have the. I'll look it up later. I'm not going to look it up right now. No, no, no. We have show notes for that. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. But it's the it's the one where raw talks about. Um, authentically acting or, or like in the moment acting authentically and then later uh, examining what you did is the best way to gain catalyst because, because you're not like controlling what happens in the moment um, for, for the purpose of like, I don't know, whatever um, investment you might have in the way things go, right? You're just being spontaneous. And then like all the stuff comes out of you, all the catalyst comes out really naturally. And then you have on your, on your hands, like, the stuff that came out of you that you can now analyze yeah. or make sense of. Now that, that last bit, the analyzing, the making sense of, I think that you, if you're not doing that, um, then psychological dependency and criticism as well are both just 
bad habits. You're just sort of like yeah. spewing out the, the stuff you got inside and never really making much use of it. Coping mechanisms. Right. Yeah. So on the one hand, what I want to say is um, there's something to be said for saying what's on your mind. Just in general, because then it reveals to you what was on your mind. Certainly. In, in, that, in, that narrow, like that, in that narrow way, you're absolutely right. That's using the mirroring function the other way, right? Right. I mean, in my experience, I often don't know what's on my mind until I say it. And then I end up saying things that surprise myself. Yeah. However, predictably, the conversation can't end here. Because if if the injunction is just like, say what's on your mind as honestly and forthrightly as possible, then you set yourself up for being a jerk to everybody if you have a bunch of judgy thoughts. Absolutely. Like, uh, on the one hand, you want to be heard. Simply speaking may teach you something about yourself. I grant that. Um, but it, it is in the full reflection from the comprehending other self that you will get the best you know, uh, reflection of what it is that you're actually putting out there. Um, and the second thing is that if it's, it, it, and I think one of the boundaries that I'd like to put in place here is for our discussion is criticism as service. If we're not seeking to be of service, then yeah, I agree. Like there's all sorts of emotional ways or like cruel ways that you can reflect to people. Like we all know how to do that. Uh, the issue is how can you do it in a way uh, that reflects love. Um, that what Ra, I'll, I'll paraphrase Ra for my part and say they have that part about, you know, find truth within love, right? Like mirroring accurately, I think this is in session 105, I'll put in the notes, but mirroring accurately does not mean that you just tell people good things and you never ever tell them anything negative. It means you find truth in love. So you find loving ways to tell people about ways in which they might interpret it as falling short, right? Right, like falling short of their own ideals? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and I, But I do want to offer another caveat, which okay. is that um, being loving isn't just a matter of, like, acting in a way that you conceive as loving. Oh, yes. Um, so, so, like, yes. you can only be as loving as you are, is, is essentially what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Um, in which case, again, I have to sort of fall back on authenticity. Um, yeah. So, I mean, even when I when I tell my partner that I love her, um, I it's I don't like I refuse to do it as just a mechanical reaction to her telling me that she loves me. I mean, of course I love her, but when I say the words, I want them to like come from below. I went through a phase of that in my marriage. <laughs> Well, it got I mean, easier yeah. to just uh, uh, do the ritual and try to imbue the ritual with love instead of try to like have it on my own terms. <laughs> it's just where I ended up. That's that's what's mine, Joseph. There's some push and pull. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There always is, and that's why like uh, that's what makes like criticism and mirroring so uh, effectively in these intimate relationships so difficult because there's never any point that you land at where it's like fixed and finished there's always this kind of evolution going on 
just like it is within the self. It's like a greater self, you know? Well, actually the relationship aspect, um, it can make it pretty easy to talk about criticism. Hmm. So, uh, if you're in a romantic relationship and certainly most people have been, um, then you're probably familiar with the kind of, um, how can I say this, uh, pernicious, maybe even like destructive, uh, effect that criticism can have. Because in, in that kind of relationship, um, more than any other, the one thing that your partner wants from you is complete acceptance. And I mean, I certainly think of uh, full acceptance of, uh, between us as, uh, I don't know, one of the ideals of, of a healthy relationship. It's, it's a thing toward which I strive. Yeah. So if that's the case, um, then, then where is there even any space at all for criticism? And, and I think the answer is what you've already pointed at, which is um, each of us in our relationship, we have standards that we hold ourselves to. And I think part of the responsibility of being in that relationship is to find a way to say to the other person, I don't think you're living up to your own standards um, without telling them, without also like, not just not telling them, but without actually judging them, I should say, without rejecting them for it. Yes. Your own standards is a way of saying the person that I see you as is different than this. Like, 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 it's almost like you're saying uh, my concept of what is yours seems off, right? (laughs) Help me with that. Yeah. A lot of times what I'll say is, um, like, are you sure this is the way you want to go? Yeah. And then I'll give, I'll give some reasons why it might not be. Yeah. You've said that to me before. (laughs) Or some reasons, some reasons why, why maybe this doesn't live up to your own standards. But, but it's not for me to say whether it ultimately does, whatever the thing is. Well, this is the aspect of service that I think is 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 one of its most interesting um, uh, like elements. It's this imaginative role of service. Um, so, in session eighty nine, question thirty, Ra addresses this, and they say it is our feeling that to be each entity, which one attempts to serve, is to simplify the grasp of what service is necessary or possible. It seems to me that when you're talking about, you're not being true to yourself in some way. That you're trying to reach into that person. Otherwise, you'd have no reference point, right? And to me, like, that's perfectly fine. I think we do that all the time. The question is, is like, where are the boundaries of that? When does being the entity that you seek to serve uh, cross from... uh, uh, trying to give them what they need to putting too much emphasis on your construction of their need, right? And that's a tricky thing because it's so, it's such a fine line. Well, actually I think it's even, even trickier than it seems Um, because I can think of many instances for myself in which um, my partner had to, um, I don't know, just shake me out of, of almost a, a delusion or like a, a an outrageous fantasy that I couldn't like I couldn't see through to the bottom of myself. Yeah. It, if and if not for her, then like I'm not sure how or when or even if I would have come out of it. But um, 
I certainly, in retrospect, am grateful for the numerous times that she's um, sort of, you know, shaken me hard enough to, to, to make me snap out of it. So in that regard, uh, it sure seems like criticism can be a service, and even criticism of me as not living up to my own standards, or me as, even if I'm not, even if I think I'm living up to my own standards, as not living up to the standards she has for uh, a relationship. Yeah. The greater self that you're building with this other person, that, that kind of internal standard. Um, I will note that like, uh, your metaphor does employ a kind of force, (laughs) right? Like sometimes that is how it's experienced. It's experienced as not self. And if it comes with an urgency, if it comes with a certain dynamic, it does feel like force. But the other thing I'd say is that the, 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 the wonderful thing about criticism within the intimate relationship is that I think it speaks to this, this role that uh, Quo in that 1991 session was talking about the critic, right? When they talk about how shall the critic grasp the nature of the play if it is only an observer, right? What they're saying, what I interpret that as is, you know, you can't just be in the in the in the ivory tower looking down on the on the subject of criticism and just being like, these are the ways in which you're wrong. The reason is is because in order for you to best meet that person where they're at, become that person to the extent that that's possible, you have to be fully engaged in the aspect of life that you are talking about. It cannot just be this, and that's what I think they mean by clever, intelligent, intellectual. If I thought that meant that in order to serve, I had to be a dummy, like then I probably wouldn't have this. This this path wouldn't appeal to me. But I think what they mean by that is the the clinical remove, right? <laughs> like it's 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 the um that sort of almost laboratory mentality that people have when they do criticism, right? Of like I'm coming in as an objective observer. And that gives me that is where a lot of the the urgency of my of cr- criticism comes from is that you should be taking this more seriously, and yet that's something that seems almost a little bit too academic for what for what this is trying to talk about it's to me it seems like uh you need so they they say what they mean you need simply to straighten up the household of your mind. And when it is tidy, to move into the heart. And that, to me, is one of those clues about how can we find truth and love, right? Well, the first step is to get yourself ready to do criticism, right? Get yourself ready to do mirroring. You have to be prepared. It doesn't, it doesn't always come naturally. Especially when, it, when, it, when you know, let's be honest, a lot of, there's a lot of projection that goes on sometimes in criticism, right? I mean, I'm bringing the emotional thing back in. I know I'm going outside the boundaries, but no, it's that's fine. I mean, I'm a, <laughs> what are the boundaries? Right. Um, and and I actually didn't mean to to when I was circumscribing my initial boundary, I didn't mean to cut emotions out. Yeah. So you're reminding me of times when I had to say prepare for a conversation that I expected to be uh, unpleasant. Yeah. Or where I had some things to say that would not that I knew would not. Uh be happily received and in those cases um man it's really hard it's hard to to find like to find and maintain the open heart in those kinds of situations not just because 
what I have to say is critic critical, maybe just because I have something to defend, and so I'm just trying to to find some way to um, to like shore up my defense of this thing, whatever it is. Like, um, let's say it's a relationship with a person, and I think that the the unpleasant thing I have to say puts that relationship with this person uh, at risk. But I don't want to stake that relationship with this person. I, I sort of want it both ways. I want to be able to say this thing and retain the way the relationship was before I said the thing, right? Right. No, it's uh, it's it's. And, go ahead. So in that in that regard, I think maybe that's what the uh, the cleverness is about is is me trying to figure out some some plan of action so that I can have it both ways. Yeah, it's uh. It's a way of kind of hedging your bet in the service. And does it does it does it take some of the heart out of it? Does it take some of the investment? Does it make you more of an observer than a person I think, engaged? I think it's manipulative, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree. <laughs> I was tiptoeing around <laughs> it. Um, it reminds me of so that. I don't think it makes you any. Go on. I just it, it reminds me of that Hatan uh, session that I've been working on that essay for like ten years now. Um, where they're talking about in order for you to be like, in order for you to communicate from the heart, from one heart to another heart, you have to, uh, you have to not have anything at stake. They say like, you have to leave relationships behind. You have to leave attachments behind in order to truly communicate. Otherwise you're holding yourself back. They're holding themselves back and there's no way to really have the idea, the concept that you're trying to transmit be Appreciated because this is how because when you speak the criticism, when you speak the mirroring and the reflection, you assume that it's happening on its own terms, right? You're that is the sense if you're being if you're being positive about it, if you're trying to be helpful, you want it to be understood on its own terms, not as the the the, the way that I see it always going awry is when it gets conflated with us, right? So it's not just a criticism, it's his criticism and all the things that he's bringing to the table. When he criticizes me, if it was just seen on its own terms as its own thing, without any attachment to an ongoing relationship with this person, without any expectation that it should be accepted, and if it's not accepted the way you want, well, that's a problem. Like if it was just seen on its own terms, it would be, it would, it would, it would uh, uh, conform to this ideal that we are speaking of, that 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 Hatan was speaking of, of nothing at stake. Well, that's an ideal. Right. So, and actually, right. this is something that I, I commonly worry about in New Age communities in general, and the Law of One community, community in particular. Yeah. There's so often we, we have this, like, projection of, a, a, of an ideal, and um, we, we measure ourselves against that ideal and find ourselves coming up short, um, or we attempt to live the ideal, and so all of life becomes this sort of... Uh, this act, even even when you're by by yourself, maybe you're you're just sort of acting in a way that that maybe meets this ideal as you have it in mind. But of course, like that, maybe that's not where you are, um, and certainly that's not where I am. Like I take things personally sometimes. Yeah. Um. So, so even like, I guess I just I worry about making too much of the ideal, and not enough of the methods or the the approach to to living that um, moves us step by step 
toward that ideal. Yeah. That, that's more where I'm going. To me, it's, and I think you'd agree with me, but tell me if not. The ideal is useful as a, as a fixed point that you can orient to. It doesn't mean that you're actually going to get there. Like North like, Star, right. But you're right. So like to me, it's like, okay, if I recognize that I have things at stake when I'm communicating with someone, then I know there are incompletenesses to what I'm doing. I know that there's other there's other things riding on the carrier wave of that communication, right? I know, in other words, it's not just about love. It's not just about this radiation of love. I think we have to accept that most of our communications, most of our uh, attempts to reflect honestly are going to have um, impurities to them, right? And that's okay. Yeah, and to use the, the ugly M word, um, I think it's it's best if if we just admit to ourselves the times when we've been manipulative, when when like I've had some ulterior motive and I tried to parse that ulterior motive in terms of like service and try to like glitz it up into mm-hmm. the the shape that might be appealing to uh, like to like wear the trappings of the ideal. But really, beneath all those trappings, there's still this ulterior motive. And effectively, what that means is I was still trying to man- manipulate you to get the thing that I wanted. And I just I just worry that this is just <laughs> this is one of my worries that we get so caught up with the with like living up to the ideal that we can't admit the times that we've actually just been manipulative with somebody else. And yeah. if we could just admit that, um, we actually might step closer to the ideal. Like yes. ref- being unable to admit that prevents you from reaching the ideal. It's just so ironic. I I could not agree more. I think that honesty with the self is a lot of what the Quo passage is trying to point at, right? Uh, through love, open the heart so that without fear, you may greet yourself. They're not talking about how you deal with other people. They're talking about, again, I think a lot of the Confederation messages preparing yourself to be a mirror. That spend most of your emphasis your 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 effort on working on yourself there's plenty to do there and the idea is that so that you can be spontaneous in interpersonal situations because i i think i think i think what we're saying is that it's in that spontaneity that you learn the most and it's in this life is not about doing it perfectly it's not about making your life into a platonic ideal it's about making your life into a learning mechanism for the soul for the for the mind by spirit complex and so you do that best when you're spontaneous, but <laughs> we invest in that spontaneity by working on ourselves in the interim, right? That's where meditation comes in. That's where the reflectiveness and the contemplation and the work on self um, so that we can criticize other people in love and we can, let's not forget, also hear criticism with love. Another huge part of this that we haven't really even addressed yet. We're, we're addressing it as the aggressor. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I'm, I've been focused on that because I think that's... Me too. Um, that's where the uh, gap in discussion probably is. I think it's, especially in the Confederation messages, I think you hear a lot more about... Yeah. Um, at least I've read a lot more about being the recipient of unpleasant stuff and then what you do with that. But not quite as much as uh, about um, being the... Uh, source of unpleasant stuff and what to do about that. My search at the transcript library bears that out fully, Joseph. I found much more about accepting criticism than giving it. So, so actually here's something that I wanted to discuss that we haven't, we, we touched upon in the, like the, the ever so slightest way. 
And this is actually the place where I think criticism might even be the, the most important um, in terms of service. And that's uh, the kind of criticism that you offer to a person insofar as you and that person are participating in the construction of something bigger than yourselves. Mm. Because, because in that case, yes, I see where you're it's, going. It's not, yeah, it's not just about the values the other person has for themselves. It's about this larger whole that you're both participating in in the creation of. Right, with the intimate relationship being probably the most focused version of that, but also the least powerful in terms of being able to act on the world. When we get into more institutional settings, organizations that are three or more, right? That's when we start really getting into a situation where they're that shared idea of the entity created has so many different possible versions, right? Right. Yeah. So, so three or more, right? Yeah. Um, like consider, consider this very podcast. It's easy to think that this, it's just you and me, a couple of guys having a chat, but if it was just a couple of guys having a chat, why on earth are we recording this? In which case, since there's a third party involved, then it makes sense for us to say after the recorded chat, um, maybe offer some criticism and and ask each other, hey, is this the sort of thing that we wanted to create? Uh, is this the sort of thing that we think actually makes some positive difference in the world? Um, what are our actual motives here? What are my motives? What are yours? Are you sure your motives are pure? I'm not sure if mine are mm-hmm. and so on, right? Yeah. And there are different ways that we could address that, right? We could address that as, well, when you were on the podcast, uh, Joseph, you were blah, 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 blah. Instead of saying like, you know, what is this ideal that we're headed to? Like putting it uh, uh, putting it uh, in a position where we all haven't, we're all equidistant from it. Instead of it being something that I'm trying to protect you from, or I'm trying to, you know what I mean? Like, do you see that? Like there's a true sharing involved there in order for it to be, in order for it to be not something that we need a CEO for, because in my mind, CEOs are basically the personalities of these entities that are created. That's their whole job. That's why they're paid so much. They don't do much <laughs> except embody the personality of the organization. And I think there's a way that you can say that they imbue the organization with uh, things that can't be uh, set down by policy, right? Things that are subtler. They set the tone. I went way off in the left field, but that's something I've been wanting to say for a long time about how these organizations work, because you know that's an area of particular... No, I agree. Yeah. I do think, actually, organizations tend to take on the the subtle qualities of, of their leadership yeah. in they, general. They become personality... I would go... I would be even more uh, negative about it. They become personality magnifiers, I think. They allow for personalities to gain in power and reach. And that's a lot of where the corruption and problems with imbalance come from. Sure, I'm on that train. <laughs> I've convinced Joseph, so I can only I can only assume that the listener is fully on board with my musings well, now. No, I mean don't <laughs> don't give yourself more credit than you than you deserve. I was already sort of on that well, train before well, see, you said anything. But that's one of the things this podcast is for. You were asking about that. It's to give me more credit than I deserve. Or it's maybe a personality it's magnifier, right? it's propaganda yeah 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 enjoy our propaganda yeah that's i mean like it propaganda is the extreme of manipulative communication i think like it is it isolates an individual 
relative to a mass politic, right? And it, 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 it tries to manipulate the individual into conformance and ways to manipulate that individuals manipulate other individuals are just like more targeted, but less, less widespread versions of that. Where the idea is that you are the, the person is a means to an end, right? That that's, that's kind of the pithiest way that I can put it. So this is a can of worms. You don't have to open it. You can just say okay. Jeremy doesn't know a lot about Kant and leave it at that. <laughs> it's no, it's not. <laughs> I just have an alternative uh, idea about propaganda where it's not. Oh, please, pure manipulation. Oh, okay, cool. So my thought is that um, propaganda serves to induct somebody into a holistic perspective, and the way you do that is by building a media bridge between the kind of perspective they already have and the kind of perspective that you're trying to communicate. And actually, I think the only way to, to induct somebody into a different perspective is through propaganda, which is to say this media bridge from one place to another. Now, I'm using a, a very broad definition of propaganda where the idea is that um, I'm constructing this thing to in, induce a way of seeing in you, um, even if you don't realize that's what's happening. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I'm trying to subvert your will, um, because because I can like I can even fiction does this right. Yeah. A work a good work of fiction will do this, and no and the the fiction writer didn't ask you if you were like if you wanted to join this perspective and and what good would that even do anyway if you don't have the perspective in the first place? Because how could you judge whether you <laughs> this, wanted it? This, this is super funny because um, what I'm hearing here a lot. Uh, and that not just in this statement, but in previous ones that you've mentioned too, is that the aesthetics of this that it's a that it's a that it's largely a kind of um, aesthetic appeal to manipulate someone. You're like um, or like to propagandize someone. You are setting out an ideal that you wish for them to enter into, and they kind of have to like swallow the whole thing in order for it to be successful. And you know, there's a there's a sense in which all art, uh, to a certain extent, is a kind of manipulation in this way, right? So actually, what I'm trying to do is separate propaganda from manipulation. Oh, sorry. So I'm suggesting there's propaganda that that doesn't manipulate, in, in the sense so that it appeals to something within somebody, right? Right. So yeah. I think that that you, you can't you can't like you can't get permission for inducing someone into a perspective because they don't know what they're signing on to. So it, the permission wouldn't make a difference. But what you can do is set set up your induction into a perspective so that it's merely an option and not the only option. Yeah. So so if you if you try to convince somebody that the perspective you're offering is the only perspective, the only good one, well, that would be manipulative, especially if you're trying to do it without um, in a way that subverts their their agency. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, and, it, and it's and it's instructive to think that um, most of the propaganda that we think of as being the worst examples exist in societies or contexts in which things are so controlled. Anyway, the propaganda is simply reinforcing this 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 lack of options, right? This this lack of other ways of looking at it, right? It's just trying to like beat it into them, you know, you know, you you can easily like because you and I will see something that we consider to be propaganda. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'll, sometimes I'll have a visceral reaction to that. But if everything in my life is reinforcing it, I have a choice to either be in discord 
perpetually or to in some way accommodate it, right? Yeah, that's a tragic thought, actually. But yes. Well, like that, that to me is like kind of the experience. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm drawing to, uh, maybe I'm jumping over too many hurdles here, but it seems like there's something about incarnation itself that puts you in a position like that. There's something about incarnation where you are put into a position where you have to occupy a locus in a moment of time relative to things you have no control over. And if those things are coordinated as the creation, as an intelligent, as an intelligent creation is coordinated, there will be some sort of like impression that happens. And, you know, Ross says that, um, you know, the consciousness is like water and it, and it, and it, it's very easily impressed. I think we need to, I think we need to reckon with that. Um, the, the way in which the mind is easily impressed this is why <laughs> this is why we cannot rely upon it utterly. There has to be heart involved. There has to be some place where spirit can come in and show us a, a, a context that is bigger than the context we seem to find ourselves in, right? That that um Carl Jung book, um, The Undiscovered Territory, talks all about this. They're talking about how um you know, you can say whatever you want about people who are religious, but at least they have a context outside the world that they observe by which to judge it. <laughs> people who are just secularists have a much harder time articulating the reasons why the world might be good or bad other than just their 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 feeling. Once you have refined this this inner standard that flows from outside of you but is not subject to the things you see in your waking life, now you have some way to judge it. You have some way to say whether it's yours or not. I don't know what you're supposed to do with that, Joseph. <laughs> I'm just riffing here. <laughs> you're good. You, you sort of, you sent me down a, a train of thought that, that I do actually don't, I do want to put the lid on. So I'm not going to, Good. Not gonna gonna go down that train of thought. That's good. I'm glad you are exercising your agency in this podcast. <laughs> I, I just I just worry about, uh, yeah, getting too too far afield from from the topic at hand. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is one way in which we can look at the source of criticism. Right. What happens when the source of criticizing one's world? one's politics, one's uh, economic system, uh, other people, is coming from an ideal that one feels deeply. It's not rooted in some sort of like, re like it's not necessarily rooted in some sort of axe to grind. It's rooted in like something deep that just can't be reconciled, right? Yeah. Okay. You All can right, do work on, you can do work on yourself to bring that into clearer focus, so that then you can express it better. But the feeling is still, the feeling is the feeling, right? The feeling is still the same and it, it either works well for you, it doesn't. And so like, you know, the, the, the idea is, is once again, we're getting to the emotional part of criticism, aren't we? Because if this is something that you cannot express to another person that you might be criticizing in a shared ideal, you know, upon what basis would you be making the critique? Investment in um, this, uh, I guess, a, a big picture view of what kind of actions or what kind of ways of uh, 
organizing or what kind of ways of relating to other people are uh, not just good ways to serve, but the ways that you actually want to serve. Um, thinking about, and actually what I'm trying to say is that this is the, the, the realm in which I find myself generally most critical. And when I'm being critical in this way, it's not that I'm telling other people, or it's not that I'm even thinking that other people are bad people or should be better, or they're not good enough as they are. Um, it's that my, my concern is about the, um, the object that you're fashioning, this artifact that's not just like the, the personality or the uh, particular person's perspective, but it's this thing that we're putting out into the world and my concern is what effect that has on the world. And, and I don't think this is a, an inert kind of concern. I mean, we can just, we can even appeal to Ra's own experience on planet Earth. And I would say an, almost a kind of remorse that they seem to have for the, some of the effects of their attempts to make a difference on planet Earth. I mean, I, I actually think remorse is a pretty important um, feeling to to engage with in order to like continue to walk the the service to others path yeah it's, it sounds like you're pointing out uh that one of the places where you uh find your criticism to be most urgent is when there's a lack of care involved in how one's behavior or conduct or something are, are, are is, is affecting what like a common project you have with that person Right, or yeah. even just um, the the audience that the person has. Like, I can criticize, say, a uh, a big personality. Um, I don't know. I could name names, but maybe I won't. <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you name your own names, not you, the the third party. Of course. Um, but like, I can criticize a big personality who has uh, a, a, a an outreach, who has an effect on say the same community that I uh, interact with and my criticism wouldn't be that that person is a bad person. My criticism would be entirely about what effect, not, I mean, not just the effect, but like what effect this person has in their community um, and whether or not they realize the, the potential disconnect between the uh, basic values of the community and the effect that they're having on the community. Yeah. I mean, it just seems it seems obvious to me, but maybe I'm wrong here. It seems obvious to me that not everyone who has a lot of public recognition as a kind of like, I don't know, source of inspiration um, is well accorded that position. And continuing to play into that kind of um, social treatment of who they are, this sort of like this cult of personality, we can call it, continuing to, to play into this cult of personality, to act out, say, the spiritual leader, um, it just, I mean, it, <laughs> it just deepens the kind of um, distortions that, I don't know, I just have spent my entire career in the law of one community attempting to iron out 
but but we're actually getting into to some sort of like deeper personal stuff for me, I suppose. <laughs> for me too, but um, I, I think the I think the interesting thing is it would be to reflect on. Okay, so you have this. Let's let's continue to use this uh, example because I think we need to be. We don't want to be observers here. We want to be in the game. We want to speak from things that that happen to us. So um, the issue is is like. What is it that can be done in that scenario that is of service? Right? And if it's not criticism, it's not criticism, but like, you know, that, it, that, that that's the kind of thing we're focusing on. Well, I mean, it's one of the obvious ways to be of service is to lay out the reasons why uh, I, I might think that this person should not be um, treated as, say, a spiritual leader, whoever the person is. Right. And actually, I'm not sure I believe in spiritual leaders at all. Um, so I, I, I would question anyone who calls themselves a spiritual leader. But you can tell when someone's uh, donning the mantle. You know what I mean? Like, whether they say it or not. <laughs> right. But, but like laying out reasons why, say, we might not be well served by trusting someone, mm-hmm. that it seems obvious that that's a kind of criticism, but I also see it as a kind of service, not to the person that you're criticizing, but to the people that this person has an impact on. Yeah. That then, and and you've been bringing it back to this often. And I, I think it's worth underlining that criticism is not just about in certain situations, two parties. It's very important to understand that others can benefit from this learning process that you're going through with another. Um, and that in the organization, this is multiplied several times over, right? Like it becomes a really, really big interrelationship. I mean, I think that's why um, in some of the channel in, in the channeling that I did at the last intensive where they were talking about institutions, I think this is this is what I feel they were hinting at. You know, these these threads that we're 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 weaving between people, um, they have a lot of power to them, and they're also super super delicate, and um, so. One doesn't want to criticize to the point where you break the threads. One wants to criticize to the point where the threads are refined and they're understood and they bring, the more and more consciously they can bring out the shared project, the better. So, but we still come back to the same issue, Joseph, which is like, what, what can you do that is service and criticism in this scenario? Because I would say, because my answer to that would be, well, one way you can do it is really subtly. You can set an example of what you think should be done. I mean, there's been several people who, uh, there's been several times, I think, uh, where, you know, just by doing your own thing, you are seen as implicitly criticizing others, you know? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, certainly some of the things I've said in this very podcast uh, serve as criticism for the people who do things otherwise, right? Sure. Even though I haven't named any names. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I would say the same thing. I mean, I think from the point of view of setting an example, uh, you are militating against the idea that, uh, that, 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 that service is comprised solely of like, you know, doing podcasts or writing books or, or giving lectures or seminars and stuff like that. Like, those are great, um, but uh, that's not the way that I 
I seek to serve. I seek to serve through podcasts. <laughs> and also uh, trying to, I really do try to test these ideas out in my life. And like, I think you do too, which is why you can speak with such honesty to the parts of the Confederation's message where it might be a little bit too ateliated, to use Ra's term, like a little bit too frail and delicate and idealistic. And it doesn't partake of the of the of of of, of the real furnace of catalyst that 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 causes changes in our lives, right? Yeah, actually, the the Confederation quote that you read about criticism earlier, um, and and the ones like it, they tend to rub me the wrong way because yeah. um, they strike me as a very atomized picture of human interactions, where all that's happening is you've got like you're a person, and then there's other people, and you have an interaction. And it affects you and it affects them. And that's that. Um, and I just, I, I think that um, there's just a lot more going on um, than this very atomized picture of individuals touching the lives of other individuals. Because we collectively construct um, what I've called propaganda and we share it and we spread it and it, it moves from generation to generation mm-hmm. and it picks up momentum. And we don't realize that we've like, we've bought into the perspective that we were raised with. We don't even recognize that the perspective we were raised with is a perspective. It just seems like the way things are. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, Some of the greatest services that are done on this planet are people just pointing to another possibility that this, this, this world seems to preclude, right? Like other possibilities, other imaginative ways to think about the self and others in relation, other imaginative ways to think about the world, just those alone. I mean, in super authoritarian societies, those alone are like things that you get punished for just thinking differently. But we also need to uh, take responsibility. I think you're right. We need to take responsibility for the fact that we're running a lot of software we didn't write, <laughs> Right. So and and that's and that's fine because that's what we dove into this thick pool of third density to do. Like a lot of it is like how can we run the software and still transmit love? <laughs> if the software doesn't get in the way of the love, it's the the urgency of getting it to be exactly what I want. I think if I if I seek to serve, that urgency diminishes a little bit. For example, um, in in a chat that you and I are a part of, we were talking about um, gendered ways of expressing love, right? And how those are often looked in in current society. Like, I, I let me let me spell out exactly the example that I was trying to tell you guys. I look at all these like movies from the forties and fifties where you co- there's a, there's a, a party that you know adults are at, and the and 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 you know two couples will meet, and of course the guy lavishly lavish lavishly compliments the other wife on her beauty or something like that right like this day and age that doesn't really fly among my generation and your generation that seems really creepy right but at that time it was a way for a man to show respect to a woman somehow like i know that that seems really weird but i think at that time that's that's where people's mentality was it doesn't mean that we have to approve of it it's be it's where i'm not talking about approval I'm talking about understanding that love comes out in these different ways. It's it's contextualized by the software running on that platform at that time in that society. 
And you have to, to a certain extent, you have to work with that because the Revolutionary Act, the act that, you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s gave us of moving towards this more um, inclusive way of showing love, let's say, um, was a reaction to that. And it took a lot, and it, it caused a lot of pain, I think. <laughs> it, I, I think it was worth it. I think people need to evolve in their thinking, and there's always going to be change is always uncomfortable. But at the same time, if we, if, if we take, this is what I was trying to get at in our conversation. If we forget about the love and the intention and the consciousness involved, and we just focus on the trappings and the form with no respect for the content, then we're also doing a disservice, I think, in the analysis. Yeah, let me try to, to reparse what you've been saying just now. So it seems like it's possible even in a, a deeply, like a world that's deeply regimented by uh, gendered norms, um, gender roles, it seems like even in that world, it's still possible to abide by all those norms and um, express uh, love and appreciation and acceptance of another um, in w within the context of abiding by those norms in a way that doesn't, like, it's not like it becomes that love and acceptance and respect gets stripped away when the norms themselves collapse. Bingo. And like, and, 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 and when we're, and I think that when we criticize people, uh, according to these norms, which I think is, you know, social criticism is a way that we make these changes from less inclusive, uh, uh, less liberatory, let's say ways of thinking. Right. To more. So, so for sure in your example, like it's, it's, um, not a good way for society to be, in my opinion, uh, to evaluate women primarily according to their appearance. Of course. Um, that's a pretty superficial way to be treated, no matter who you are. Yep. And I can imagine that women at the time must have, um, must have chafed under those kinds of conditions. Um, and yet I can also imagine that it was so deeply embedded into the cultural norms um, that it was just like, I don't know, it's it's like, how can I say this, a hug or a handshake um, that's in, um, in the depth of a pandemic becomes like, you know, a bad idea, and yet, you know, it's well-intentioned. Exactly. It's, it, and like, this is, this is, I think, I think this is informative to our whole concept of criticism, because... Maybe does 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 it? I think it um, focuses the light a little bit more on the love aspect of it, because we can see all these things that run um, on the carrier wave of that communication or the carrier wave of that criticism that aren't love that are just either distortions of a personal kind, an emotional kind, or they're distortions that the cult that the that the platform upon which we're operating makes necessary. And the issue is like, can we distinguish between the love being transmitted and the, the, the trappings of it, right? The form and the content, as, as A Course in Miracles says. <laughs> form and content is, is much older than Course in Miracles. I know, I know. But hey, look, I'm not as well-read as you. <laughs> <laughs> can I, can I um, introduce one more topic that I don't want us to to forget to discuss. No, please to, go to ahead. Leave out. 
It's a thorny one. Okay, so we've talked about um, the the potential service of criticism. We've talked about the pitfalls of criticism, but throughout our discussion, we've stuck to interactions between good faith actors. But I wonder, um, what about if you're interacting with someone that you come to realize is a bad faith actor? So, and I just mean this in the one-on-one context. So I think it's, um, I think criticizing publicly a bad faith actor serves a social role, um, as we've already discussed. But I wonder about the one-on-one kind of experience. So let's atomize it again. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, it's 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 really good because when you talk about bad faith, I think what you're talking about are ways in which that common ideal gets purposely frustrated, right? You are you are you are leveling a critique or you're even let's just say communicating under the guise that you have some sort of shared idea, some sort of shared project that contextualizes that. The conversation is not about every single thing. It's about this one thing. The criticism is not about everything in the universe. It's some topic that you guys have a shared interest in. And yet, what does the bad faith actor do? The bad faith actor constantly reframes away from, it is the feeling, right? Because it's a judgment on your part that that person is bad faith, first of all, right? What's well, Sec- the second kind of judgment, right? It's not a value judgment. It's an assessment of what's really going on. Right. And the assessment has to do with not simply not having the same frame or the same subject or the same project of that's contextualized in the communication, but that the frame, the context is being purposely like, like uh, sabotaged. So that communication cannot occur. I... I think that's what what people usually mean by a bad faith actor. It sounds a lot like a troll. <laughs> and I think it's the same thing. Sure, I think a troll is a good example of a bad faith actor. Right. But I suspect that it's it's much broader of a kind of of a phenomenon than that. Because I think there are lots of bad faith actors that take themselves to be good faith actors. It's just that what's what's happening is they have this this ulterior motive that might even be hidden from themselves that's um that's guiding their actions and uh, closing off certain ways of relating to the other person, especially those ways that um, would be most appropriate to the kind of uh, shared activity that they're trying to engage in. So maybe an example would ground this out a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's something that comes to mind for me. Uh, A conversation I had with um, someone I actually know in person uh, about politics. Um, This... Anyway, it so <laughs> it didn't. So this person, uh, they presented their view, um, and their view was uh, di- diametrically opposed to mine. Um, and they invited debate, and I was, for whatever reason, I allowed myself to be, um, to be, um, to naively assume that debate was basically what I, the kind of ideal I hold other philosophers to where we engage in um, laying out of reasons to attempt to identify the truth the best we can in a kind of collective way, or collaborative way, I mean. But what I discovered through interaction was that, in fact, in this person's mind, debate was an attempt to, uh, to score points uh, in the eyes of an audience. Right, um, to, to and, discourage one point of view and encourage another. 
Right. Yeah. And, and in, this, in this kind of debate, uh, seeking the truth actually is not at all um, the goal. The, the goal is, is entirely um, the manipulation of any, any observing audience. And the question is, to what degree have, have you pushed the needle in, in your direction or, to, or the other person has, has sort of pulled it in their direction uh, of, like, public opinion? Yeah. In this, so, I, so in that context, I thought I was engaging in a, in a project with this person that, that lived up to my own personal values for conversation and only discovered as I was— well into the discussion that this person was just trying to score some points on me in the eyes of those who might be reading the conversation. Um, and in that moment, I discovered that this person was in fact a bad faith actor from the perspective of the thing that I thought I was doing. Um, though I'm not sure that it would be fair to call him a bad faith actor from his own perspective, since presumably that's what he had meant by debate all along. I'm not really sure. Yeah, this is what happens when you don't have a moderator that sets that sets out the rules ahead of time, you know. And that's usually how debates happen. There's no moderator involved. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Um, is it is it as simple as they're just being like different think different projects? Like you were just confused about the projects. He had one idea, you had another. If to me, because to me, like that's different than a bad faith actor who seeks to obscure. He seeks to obscure your ability to make a point, and seeks to obscure the ability for you to argue uh, uh, clearly what you well, want. Well, that's precisely what he was doing. Yeah, but it it played into the the very idea of debate that he had. So actually, I'm I'm maybe I'm suggesting that this this conception of debate debate is itself. Nothing but a conception of two bad faith actors, yeah, talking to one another. It, it where, where, where I would say the practice of law and the way that law is uh, deliberatively or sorry, uh, argumentatively prosecuted is a great example of this, right? Like at the end of the day, winning the case is what matters, and it's what you can say and what kind of impressions you can create in whoever is the judge or jury that matters. Like, how many times have we seen a procedural where they'll say something completely egregious that, that introduces a point in the jury's mind, and then they get, they get smacked down, they say, withdrawn. Like, it's not really withdrawn. <laughs> Nobody right, really the believes jury heard that. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've always wondered about that. Like, how, how can, can a, jur- a juror really, you know, unhear they, a thing? They can't disregard anything. Of course not. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so there, there's another example where you're trying to go for these laboratory conditions. You're trying to have pure observers, and yet, is that really possible? No, no. We're all in the emotional miasma here. Any case, uh, I do think it's interesting that you think that this person's idea of themselves is good faith, because it seems like they build into their definition of debate bad faith. Like, it's part of the definition. And so the question I have for you, Joseph, is why would you engage this person at all? <laughs> I, I didn't, you didn't know. know that. Yeah, okay. My, my interaction with this person, like I, like I said, I knew them in person, was never in a political context. This right, right. It was just right. like it, a, an incidental interaction on Facebook with a person I knew, uh, you know, face-to-face. So, so the only criticism that's actually possible in that scenario— uh, is one that humiliates them, right? <laughs> it's one that emotionally cows them because you can't intellectually point out anything 
that would that would move them. And then you are genuinely manipulating them, right? Like that 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 is mani- I think that's manipulative. I think trying to hurt somebody to get a goal is manipulative in a way. Maybe maybe I'm stretching it too far. Well, no, I I agree that there's something that, there that's a thread. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Cuz sometimes okay, here here's a here's a dangerous thought. Sometimes people have humiliation coming. Yeah. Um and and sometimes especially if there's an audience like you got to be the harbinger of that humiliation, not because like not in an effort to change this person's mind, but um but because of the the public it, it's the third party that makes all the difference. That is a tough dangerous thought. However, in this case, the third party was like um I don't want to get too much into the details, but it was a very small audience, and yeah, I don't yeah, think I, I eventually discovered that there was nothing I could do either for this, like in this person's case, or their or the audience. But more specifically, um, well, the next time you debate with Ben Shapiro, can you just let me know so I can listen in? <laughs> oh Lord, this person actually was using Ben Shapiro's uh, talking points. I, I I could feel it, man. I could feel it. Because facts and logic, right? It's all about facts and logic. There's nothing else involved. Yeah. So with this with this person that I was uh, interacting with, um, I came to the conclusion that there was not much I could do. Um, I do think that the my effort was in its own way manipulative, and, and that was certainly a lesson for me. Manipulative in the sense that um, I could see that his reasoning was not good. And I could see all the errors in his thinking. And I thought, well, maybe if I engage with him without necessarily appealing to my position of authority, um, because I happen to be a lot better read on these things than he is, Mm -hmm. um, maybe I could raise some objections and help him see that he's making some errors here. Um, So so in in my case, I think maybe I should have just, you know, been more forthright about what I was trying to do. So the fact that I couldn't be forthright, or felt like I couldn't be forthright about like the purpose of, of my engaging with him in the first place, which is that you don't know much, but I know a lot. Let me help you see some things, right? Had yeah. I done that, he might have said, nah. Yeah. He might have felt condescended to, right? Yeah. Well, he's young. But then, by the same token, I remember being young, and I remember thinking that I knew it all. Oh yeah, and when you go so, on the internet to prosecute that image of yourself, and all you're seeing, all you're seeking out are the things that reinforce that thinking, then you just go in the battle thinking that, of course, everybody should think like this, and you're you're insane if you don't. I don't know. That was my experience with internet debating. You know. Yep, that's about mine too. So I guess I guess maybe the conclusion is I can't think of a way to to um, interact with a person who's acting in bad faith especially in, in a critical mode that actually serves them. Other than withdrawal? That's not critical. That's just withdrawal. Yeah, okay, critical. I, sorry, I missed that point. Okay. Um, there would be no way to, like, uh, maybe ask probing questions about their 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 approach to debate. What do you, what do you consider, uh, what do you consider your reason for being here? You know, like that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. So you would have to find a way to turn them like to, to, um, you got to pull back. Side, 
yeah. to sidestep the bad faith and yes. transform it into good faith. What I'm trying to think of is like, it's not so much about criticism and uh, rescuing that concept here as what would be the loving thing to do, right? I think I think there's an argument to be made that the loving thing to do is, is to withdraw. You know, I actually have some difficulty with this concept of, of love because um, pr- precisely because we say love, but I'm not certain that it's really clear what love is beyond like a certain kind of feeling. Yeah. And, and it's sort of presupposed that you and I have both felt it. And so we, we know what the feeling is. It's literally a do ex machina, right? Like it's, it's the, it's the remainder that's left when we've parsed everything out in this philosophy. But here's an alternative to a similar situation. Instead of asking what the loving thing to do is, you might ask, let's suppose this person is on the service to others path. What would help them along that path? Okay. That's certainly a good faith way to approach it. I mean, I will say that. It has that advantage going for it. It's very good faith. And I think that exhibiting good faith on our part is something that we ought to... That might be something that we could could claim as ours, right? This is mine. That's not mine. Mine is good faith. Mine is trying to bring clarity. My even if I even if my agenda is not served by it, right? I bring clarity. I bring more awareness of 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 the entire panoply of issues here and, and angles here, even if it serves to obscure my agenda and my the, the, the acts that I have to grind. And I think maybe that's an important thing for us to, instead of like focusing so much on the bad faith person who obviously is, (laughs) who can say why they're doing it or what they're seeking to get out of it. You know, I think in the case of the troll, it's a sheer emotional payoff, right? It's like some sort of way to hold somebody down and get pleasure from another person's, uh, inability to from another person's humiliation let's just be straight up um but if we can seek to always be good faith that might actually circumscribe a lot of the criticism that can go awry right i mean once again it's a concept that we're kind of leaving undefined just like love but i think love is so undefinable that we have to find these, okay, what is love in this situation? What is love in this context? Like, you're trying to find the the expressions of it. You're not trying to uh, define its pure essence. Because I don't think you can. I certainly try. I know. I know. <laughs> I know, but, uh, you know, we're already at, uh, we're getting towards 145 here. <laughs> hour 45 minutes yeah <laughs> yeah i mean well that we'll have you back on for you to give us um an exhaustive definition of love fantastic yikes <laughs> yeah um i don't know is there anything else you want to say on criticism i thought the bad faith thing was a really good point because you do need to know when you have when you share interest with another person if you don't share interest Find, let's just say finding love would be a little bit harder. That's all. Actually, I wouldn't even call it interest. I would say shared uh, values. So you, you probably can't have a good faith interaction unless you can establish a set of shared values to which you're both, or to which you're both 
you're each holding yourselves. And in that space of shared values, you can um, engage in a shared project. And then that's what the interaction becomes is this project involving these shared values. True. So, so what would have been more effective for me in service to this other person would have been just like you said, first trying to identify the shared values. Instead, I presupposed them Yeah. and discovered well into the conversation that I was wrong. Yeah. I, I've done that so many times. It boggles my mind. I hope I've learned the lesson. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, I know time is running out for you. So but yeah, I guess that's, that's about all I got. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that we have touched on a lot of different points. I don't think that we have solved this issue of criticism. When, when, when is criticism bad? When is criticism good? Like, I don't think we've really like got it clear, but like, I think people can, I think what we do is we set down these ideas and people wrestle with them on their own and try to come up with, I, I, I really would like to, at some point, dive into your ideas on love, like genuinely, because so would I. <laughs> I, I, I think there are things to be said, but they can't be said directly about it. That's the problem. You're always in a, in an indirection when you're talking about it. What is love in this scenario? Well, we can say concretely in some way how it manifests and how loving it was, but it, it will always appeal to an ideal that escapes our ability to wrap our hands around. And that's, I think what makes surface tough. We're shooting for an ideal that we don't have a clear definition of. Would you agree with that? Or are you... <laughs> I'm not sure. Actually, I need to, th- I need to reflect on this more. It sounds like this is going to be a, a part two scenario then. Um, well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Which is to say, I don't know what our next discussion will be about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we still have to get back to the archetypes at some point, so. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, but you're, you're not the person just holding be us one more that. discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you think? You think? Yeah, yeah. Once, once, I mean, we just have to have one more talk and then the archetypes will be all figured out. Well, that we can is. move on to the next thing. That, that is, that is so reassuring. Because I thought it was something you could spend a lifetime on and still not understand, but I am glad to know that it's a, no, soluble, just a few hours. soluble problem. Few hours, nothing in your life, you know? Just piece of cake. Yep. Cool. Well, you guys hear it, heard it here first. Uh, the archetypes, done. <laughs> in any case, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, episode, Joseph. I really enjoyed it. You got it, Jeremy. It's always a pleasure. And as always, listeners, uh, let us know what you think of the podcast. Uh, you can go to our website, inaudible.show slash contact dash us, or just go to inaudible.show. You'll find it. Uh, and uh, we're going to try to keep the cadence of episodes every two week, twice a month. That's kind of what it's looking like. Uh, Ryan's doing well. He says hi, um, as do I. And... Uh, In the meantime, dear listeners, stay in the love and light, whatever that might be.